Good morning. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. As we continue our walk through the book of Romans, we'll be in Romans chapter 6 today. Romans chapter 6. And this is, uh, there's a lot here in Romans chapter 6 and 7. We're going to be dealing with topics of sin and the law and the life of believers in Jesus Christ. You know, in Romans chapter 5, we learned that the peace we have with God through faith in Jesus. We learned that through faith, we can stand in his grace and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We learned that even though we were sinners, that Christ died for us. And that even though we're his enemies, we're enemies of God is what the word said. He sent his son to reconcile us to himself by dying on the cross. You know, that's, that's really what the Christmas season is about. It's about Jesus coming to save us. So make every opportunity to share that good news with this lost and dying world. We learned in chapter 5 that although we were once dead in our sin that we inherited from Adam, that we have the gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. At the end of chapter 5, Paul makes a statement that could cause some foolish thinkers to form a wrong conclusion about sin in the believer's life. He says there in chapter 5, verse 20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so... Grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we see basically and in summary that, you know, the purpose of the law was that sin would increase. And you read that and you're like, hmm. And if, you know, you're not really clear in your thinking, you might say, well, the logical conclusion then is that one should continue to sin or sin even more so that grace may abound. May it never be, is what the word says. The point here is that the law has no power to save anyone from sins. Rather, the law came to actually increase sin and show us really just how sinful we are. Isn't it like that though? You know, when somebody tells you you can't do something, don't you want to do it that much more? Come on, you know, you know that's how it is. As soon as we, I probably shouldn't even bring this up, but as soon as we're told we have to wear masks, I don't want to wear a mask. No one's going to make me wear a mask. So you know it's there. You know that nature is in you. As soon as someone tells you no, don't go across that line. What do my kids do? They put their toe right across that line just to do it because I said not to. It's in all of us. You know it's there. And so what, is, what does the law do? Oh, man, it just makes sin that much more sinful and sin increases. The more laws you put down, the more rules you put down, the more violation you have and the more sin you that's just, that's the way we're, that's the way we are. It's our sinful nature. We inherited it from Adam and it's in every one of us. <clears throat> we saw that in chapter five. Now in chapter six and seven, they kind of work together. 
And there's a lot going on here in, in six and seven. I've been reading it over and over again. It's really hard to actually prepare sermons on chapter six and seven because there's, there's all this tension here in, in six and seven. And it leads up to this beautiful culmination, the pinnacle really of the book in chapter eight that Jared gets the privilege to preach. <laughs> That's the beautiful thing is like, wow, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, look what the, the spirit has done and what the law couldn't do. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. But in six and seven, and that we get to go through together in the next several weeks, we see this tension that builds up. This tension that, uh, you know, we have died to sin. Sin's no longer our master, our taskmaster, our slave master. Yet we still live in this fleshly body, and even though we've been set free from sin, we still sin. It's not our master, but we still do it. We still fall into it as believers. And at the end of seven, you see Paul, he's so frustrated. He says, I do the very thing that I hate with my body. I serve sin, and with my spirit and my mind, I serve the Lord Jesus. And who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. He's the one who delivers us from this body of death. By his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's the summary of where we're going to be getting to in the next several weeks as we work through Romans 6 and 7. And we're going to see clearly that those who are in Christ, those who are in Christ, who have believed in the Lord Jesus, we are no longer slaves to sin. We have victory over the power of sin in our lives. And I want your hearts to be encouraged by that. Sometimes we feel so defeated and discouraged, but we have victory in Jesus Christ over the power of sin in our lives. And we're gonna see that in chapter six. We have a new master and it's Jesus Christ, the righteous. We're now his children by grace through faith. And we have eternal life and abundant life in him. So with that as the introduction, let's look at chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14 today. <clears throat> chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. The Apostle Paul continues. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we have been, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves 
dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So the first question here we see is, should we sin to receive more grace? No, never. That's verses one and two. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And we see a similar verse in verse 15. If you skip one over, verse 15 says, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? No, by no means, certainly not. So Paul strongly refutes those who would say that we should sin more so that grace may increase. And you can get the attitude here, right? The attitude might be, well, you know, I'm forgiven. I'm covered. I got the insurance policy now. So I can go drive as recklessly as I want because I got full coverage. If I wreck the thing, it's going to get replaced. So I'll just go pedal to the metal everywhere I want. I don't care. You know, it's that kind of attitude. My sin doesn't matter anymore. I can sin it up and grace will abound to cover it. No, the Apostle Paul uses the strongest phrase in the Greek language here to refute this logic. You'll see in your different translations. Certainly not. May it never be. By no means. No, with like 100 exclamation points. Capital letters. That's just wrong and foolish thinking. The point of chapter 5, verse 20 and 21 here is that believers, we're supposed to rejoice in the knowledge of the fact that God's grace is greater than all of our sin. It should give us great joy to know that, you know, I'm secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing can snatch me from his hand. I didn't earn this salvation. He did the work on the cross, dying for me. I didn't work for it. I didn't earn it. So I can't lose it. It's not some ritual or set of rules that we follow. And as soon as we stray outside the path, it's gone work back to get it. No, that's not the gospel. And so we should rejoice in the fact that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not something we earn or something we could even lose. So that's written there so that we can have great joy and rejoice, not to give us a license to sin. Now, we see that the purpose of the law is to show us just how bad and widespread sin is. Even though sin seems pervasive and out of control, there's plenty of grace to cover it for all those who believe and are justified. One illustration you can think of here is that for every pebble of sin, there is a boulder of grace to cover. That's one way you can look at it. Because I have talked to people and sharing the gospel with them, and they will tell me, you know, I, I can't be saved. There's no hope for me. You, you don't know what I've done. You know, hear those words almost quoted. You know, you don't know what I've done. It's like, no, I, I don't know what you've done. I don't need to know what you've done. But God knows everything you've ever done. And he sent Jesus to die for you too. And his blood, his grace is sufficient for you. And all your sins, everything you've ever done. 
No amount of sin in your life is too much for God's grace to cover. And so we can rejoice in that. <clears throat> now, verse 2 says this, you know, those who have believed in Christ, we've died to sin. And we should no longer live in it. No longer live in it. So just because grace is there to cover it, we shouldn't think we have a license to sin. We should not live in it. Now, who is it that he's talking to here? Who is it that should no longer live in sin? Well, we know from the context that he's talking to believers. He's talking to believers because in verses 3 through 8, he uses this illustration of baptism and explains our union with Christ. Only those who are believers in Christ have experienced spiritual baptism and have union with him. So we can know from the context here that he's addressing believers. He's not saying that Jesus died for everyone and everyone's okay and we're all going to the same God anyway and it's all all right. That's not what he's saying at all. He's talking to believers. So with that established, there are really two key questions that beg for answers in verse 2. The first one is this. What does it mean that all believers have died to sin? What does that really mean? What's he getting at there? Believers are dead to sin and alive to God. We see that in verses 3 through 10. What Paul is teaching here is that is the meaning and depth of the believer's union with Christ. He's explaining our union with Jesus in terms of baptism. Now, think about baptism. Think about, you know, water baptism. What happens when you go and see someone baptized in the water? He says here, we're baptized into Christ Jesus. We're baptized into his death. We were buried with him. So think of that imagery. You go down into the water. It's a symbol on the outside of what's happened internally within us. So you go down into the water. It's a picture of you being buried. You're buried in the water in baptism. Just as Jesus died on that cross and was buried in the ground death. He died. His body died. He was fully man, and his human body died. He was really dead, and he was buried in the ground. So you see that picture in baptism. You're put into the water. You're buried in that water, and we've been united together in the likeness of his death. So those are the words he's using here. It's a lot of imagery and specific words to make the point that when you believe in Jesus, you are buried. Your old self dies at that moment. And that old sinful self is dead. And it's been buried. It's crucified with him. We died with Christ. And then we also live with him. So when you come up out of the water, you're raised to new life in Christ. Just as he rose from the grave and came out of the ground... That baptism picture is like us coming out of, it's coming out of the water to, and it's a picture of we're risen from the dead. I'm going to get into more of the details of that in just a moment. He says in verse three, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So you see, there's a, there's a lot going on here. So bear with me as I talk through it. And you might say, well, he already said that. Well, 
I need to say this repeatedly several times so we can understand the, the depth of what's happening here. So when he says we're baptized into his death, what does he mean? Well, we died to sin's power when we were baptized into Christ's death. Because when we believe our physical bodies don't die, <laughs> right? I mean, we're, we're believers in here and we're still breathing, right? We're still alive. So our physical body didn't die. But positionally with Jesus, we have died to sin's power in our lives. There's a union between Christ and believers. So that death and new life, the death and new life Christ experienced is counted by God as happening to us. In the eyes of God, when we trust in Jesus, our old self, our old sinful self died just as Jesus's body died. Our old self that was the slave to sin, it's dead and buried just as Jesus's body was dead and buried. And we're raised to new life in Christ just as Jesus rose from the dead. And this all happens spiritually when we believe. And physically when Jesus returns. There is a bodily resurrection that will happen when Jesus returns. So it happens spiritually when we believe and physically for those who believe when Jesus returns. Our bodies will rise from the grave just as Jesus's rose from the grave. But it'll be a glorified body. I won't have this problem with my ankle anymore. And I won't have a gallbladder issue. And I won't have all these aches and pains as I get older and older and older. And none of that. Right? It'll be a glorified body. And this is all what water baptism symbolizes. And this is why we water baptize as Baptists. It's the outward symbol of what has happened in our hearts. You go down into the water, and you come up out of the water. And how about you? You know, if you're a believer in Jesus, have you been baptized? It's important. That was the pattern of the New Testament church. When you believe in Jesus, you rejoice and you get wet. You get baptized. You can see the stories all over the New Testament. It's like, uh, well, there's some water right there. What's stopping us? Well, let, let's go. All right. It wasn't some big formal thing necessarily with crowds and everything necessarily. It was like, well, there's some water. Let's, let's do this. And people were eager to like say, yes, I want to be baptized. And you do that to declare to the world what has happened in your heart. You're declaring to the world what has happened in your heart. So if you are a believer in Jesus and you haven't been baptized, then let's talk about that today in our fellowship time. Maybe there's some children in here who have put your faith in the Lord Jesus and you haven't been baptized. Let's, let's talk about that. It's an important thing to do. It's a very important thing to do. And it follows the pattern of the New Testament church, the New Testament believers. So let's talk about that. So Christ's death is our death. It's the death of our old sinful self. So when verse 2 asks, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? It's referring to our death with Christ when he died and when we believed. It's historic. It's once for all. It's applied to us now through our faith. 
But since Christ died in history only once, and verse 5 says that we were united to that, our death happened in God's way of seeing things on the day Christ died. Now, I've known some people who are depending on emotional experiences for the assurance of their salvation and who think this is something that they have to do regularly to, to keep their salvation. They're really basing their assurance of salvation on how they feel. And I'm not feeling like God loves me today. I'm not feeling like I'm, I'm not feeling like I'm really saved. I'm not feeling like these things. And so I've noticed in my ministry, you know, they'll often come to the altar in a time of invitation and, and then there's emotional songs playing or something like that to get assurance of their salvation. Or they, some have even thought, you know, I must take the Lord's Supper, you know, regularly, maybe every week or sometimes, you know, more, even more than that to have assurance of my salvation because I'm just not feeling like that. But we can see here that, you know, all of this happens as a fact. It happens as a fact. It's really not based on our feelings. We can feel great one day and bad another day. It doesn't change the fact that we're saved by Jesus Christ and, and he's holding on to us. He's, nothing can snatch us from him. And so you can have, as Pastor Ralph talked about last week, that blessed assurance of your salvation in Christ through faith in him. Through faith alone. He died. We trust that. It happened once for all. It's not something that we have to go through a ritual to repeat over and over again to have assurance of salvation. And that's the, the joy and the beauty of the Christian faith. You know, if you want to become Hindu or, or Buddhist or you know, any of these other faiths, man, you got a long line of rituals and, and things you got to do to, to, to make it. And who knows if you're ever going to really get there. You're just hoping for the best. Well, as believers in Christ, it, it's totally different than that. That's, the gospel is true. And we rejoice in it. So we see that in, in the first three verses. Now, verses four and five. He emphasizes this more. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in the like in in a death like his, we shall cer certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So this baptism places us in union with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So that as Christians, we would live new lives. For if we've been united with him in his death, we shall also be united with him in his resurrection. And that is why we have a living hope in our souls through his resurrection from the dead. We read about that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. So he continues, look at verse 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, I want you to just meditate on that, verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Do you understand that you are free from sin? Do you realize that? Sin is no longer your master as it once was. 
We know from Ephesians chapter 2 that those without faith in Christ, they are slaves to sin and the devil, says the prince of the power of the air. So look around in the world. Everyone you see who does not trust in the Lord Jesus, they are serving sin and the devil, whether they understand it or not. And I tell you, there's some really good people out there who would be highly offended to, to hear you say that, you know, they're serving sin and the devil. You know, how could such a good person who does so many good things be serving the devil? Well, that's just the reality of it. You either serve Jesus or you serve the devil and sin. There is no middle ground. And all of us, before Jesus Christ, before our faith in him, we were slaves to sin and the devil. We were. And it was hopeless. We were without God and without hope in the world. But those who believe in Jesus have been freed from sin. And I'm going to say it again. You have been set free from sin. Always remember that. And we're going to see the implications of that further, further down here in the text. But I want you to always remember that. Because we still struggle with sin, don't we? This is where this the 6 and 7 gets real tense for me as I read it over and over again. Because, yes, I'm set free from, from sin. Sin is no longer master over me. But, man, I still sin. What is going on with that? I do the very thing that I hate. Why? Because there's still sin in here. And it'll be that way until Jesus comes back, until I go to be with him or he comes to bring us home. But let's work through it some more. So we've been set free from sin. That's a fact, all right? Then he says in verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So he goes a little bit further. Since we have died with Christ, we shall also live with him. So we live with him. Then he goes a little bit further. Verses 9 and 10. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So Christ, Jesus Christ, has destroyed the rule of death forever by his resurrection. And praise God for that, because sin is in our lives. Sin leads to death. We will all die. Everyone in this room, 100% statistic, is going to die. It's a sobering thought. And the older I get, the more I realize it's coming. I feel it more and more every day. We are all going to die. But Christ has given us victory over that death. He's destroyed the sting and the rule of death forever by his resurrection. For he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives forever to God. That's verse 10. So all of us who believe in Jesus for salvation, all of us are in the eyes of God, we're dead to sin. So it's a weird kind of a thing to think of. So on the one hand, I still have sin in my life, even though I love Jesus and it's my heart's desire to do the right thing. I still stumble into sin. But when God looks at me, 
it's like, okay, here's the, the view of Ryan without the glasses, right? Oh man, he's messed up. He's blurry and oh, he's, oh, what's going on? That one pimples he's got all his, on his, behind his ear or whatever, it's nasty, right? But then God looks at us through Jesus' glasses. Perfected. Sinless. Like Jesus. Because Jesus died for all that messy sin stuff. Jesus took yucky, nasty, sinful Ryan and made, washed him up and made him whiter than snow. Perfect, spotless through his death on the cross. So the way God sees us positionally is as spotless in Jesus Christ. So we can, we can take assurance in our souls that when we cry out to God, he sees us as that, that perfect child who's been saved by grace through faith. Because of the work of Jesus. So in our truest position and in our truest identity, we are completely and finally dead to sin. Both its guilt and its power. You don't have to live in discouragement and depression and guilt anymore. You can live by faith in Christ in joy and peace and love. And that will free you up to give love and joy and peace to others. And so that's the answer to the first question. We are dead to sin and alive to Christ. And so that, that's what we are positionally in the eyes of God. Now, there's a second question in verse 2 that uh, comes out. What does Paul mean when he asks in verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? What, what does he mean by that? What's he getting at here? Is he teaching that once you're saved, you can no longer sin? I've heard people preach that way. And they honestly would say, sincerely from their heart that oh yes the day i believed in jesus is the day i stopped sinning like that's amazing because <laughs> it still looks like you're sinning to me but i don't get it that, that that's out there so be aware of it and you don't be surprised by it if you run across it it's like oh that's what pastor Ryan was talking about there when he was doing roads i don't think that's what he's teaching at all <clears throat> He's saying that since you have died to sin, you really can't go on living in sin. He uses those words specifically. He doesn't say, how, you know, how can you like, continue, go on sinning or you know, continue sinning every day? No, he says you cannot sin, live in it. He uses those words. You're not going to live in it. So I have three points here from the context to help us see what the meaning is. And here's one. So in verses 1 and 2, he uses the words continue in sin, live in sin. So the idea here is that once we believed in Christ, we have died to sin, we are changed. We no longer live with a pattern and practice of sin in our lives. For the believer, sin should be the exception. It is the, the exception. It's not the rule. Before believers, before faith, sin was the rule. It's all you know. 
You live for yourself to satisfy your own passions. You know nothing else. See it all over the place. After you believe, though, that's, that's not the rule anymore. It's the exception. I want to love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's the joy of my heart to love him and to love my neighbor as myself. That's the desire of my heart. Yes, I stumble and fall to sin, but it's not the norm. It's not the pattern. It's not what I live in. One analogy I thought of is it's like moving out of an old, disgustingly and dirty, trashed house. Sin is like this old, disgusting, dirty, trash, stinky house. And it's like moving out of that into a brand new, clean home. That's Christ's righteousness. Now I live in Christ's righteousness. It's this brand new, spotless, clean, beautiful home. Now, I'm living there in that new place. But occasionally I may go back to visit the old dump of a house. Like, hey, let's go check out the old place. Go check out the old dig, see what's going on over there. What's, what's shaking over there? And I go visit that old place occasionally. But I, I'm not comfortable there. It's like, I got new clothes, I'm clean, everything's nice and perfect and pristine. I go back to that old place, it's nasty. It's like, I don't even wanna sit down. If I sit down, I'm gonna get my clothes all dirty. And it's like, Ew, I don't like to be here. Like, it, it sounds good at the first. Right? I'll go back and visit the old place. It'll be great. Have some great memories from there. And you go back there and you're like, oh, oh, how did I live here? I think about my college apartment. It's like, oh, that place was nasty. How did I ever live there? And the whole time you're back there, you're thinking that you don't belong. You think, oh, man, I just want to be back in the new place in Christ's righteousness. I want to be back over there. I am out of this old place. This place is nasty. I'm out. I'm out of here. So that's one illustration. <clears throat> you just want to get out of there. So it's like the sin. that you're, you're there in the sin again. You're like, oh, this is terrible. I'm out. Another illustration is from Luke chapter 15. The parable of the prodigal son and it's a great illustration so i want to read it you'll find it in luke chapter 15 verse 11 if you want to turn over there it's in luke 15 11. <clears throat> so it's the parable of the prodigal son jesus said there was a man who had two sons the younger of them said to his father father give me my share of the property that's coming to me what a great son right he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So the younger son gets his inheritance from the father, big bank account, lots of cash. He's a high roller. He's gone. He's out. And he spends it all real fast. It's all gone. <clears throat> Verse 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. So now he's out feeding pigs. He was going to be fed. He was longing to be fed with the pods 
that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So, I mean, that's pretty bad. All right, so if you think minimum wage is pretty bad here, it was even worse back then. <laughs> like the guy doesn't even make, he's working in the fields, but he's not even making enough to feed himself. It's so bad that he wants to eat the pig's food. Now, if any of you have been on a farm and seen what pigs eat, <laughs> it's like starve me before I want to eat that. But it's that bad, right? It's nasty. And so it's a pretty bad situation. Look at verse six, uh, 17. But when he came to himself, so I bolded that and put it in italics. He came to himself. It's like, look. What am I doing? He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against, well, I lost my place, against you and heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he's like, ah. he comes to himself. It's like, he realized in that moment, like the other illustration, this place is nasty. I'm out. I can't do this. This is not for me. He arose and came to his father, verse 20. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I love the response of the father. You can imagine, this is Bible times. He's got all these robes and everything, so it's not easy to run in that stuff. He's probably older, so he's like girding up all that stuff, and he's, he's running, man. That's the love the father has. And what does the son say? Verse 21. Son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him. So the father's like, oh, forget all that, man. You're home. You're here. I love you. Go get the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead. Mark that. In the, in the eyes of the father, the son, he had died. The son was gone. He'd taken it as inheritance. He, he probably thought he would never see him again. In the father's heart, the son was dead. And in the, in the pit, in the pods, while he's trying to eat the pig's food, that son, he, he was dead. He, he had a realization in that moment, I'm dead in here. This is death to me. And then he gets himself up out of that pit and he goes home to the father and he's alive. <clears throat> and the father rewards him and loves him and cherishes him. And he says, my son was dead and is alive again. He's alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. They had a party. That's why we, you know, if you think about what's happened in, in our lives, when we trust in Jesus, we died to sin. Sin's no longer our master. We can rejoice. We can have a party. We're alive in Jesus Christ. We rejoice in that fact. And this is how it is for those of us in Christ. We may stumble and fall into sin, 
but you cannot live there. You're not comfortable there. The Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin. You confess your sin. You're forgiven and restored by the grace of God through faith in the blood of Jesus. So no matter what you're struggling with, whatever that sin is, and you know what it is, for some it's greed. I can never be satisfied. I can never get enough. I can never make enough money or have enough things. I just always want more. For some of you, it's greed. It might be money. For others, it might be reputation. For some, it might be pornography. For some, it might be a drug addiction or alcohol addiction. Whatever it is, you know what it is. You cannot live there. And you don't have to live there. You have victory in Jesus over that. And so you can say, no, I will not do that anymore. And I will rejoice in Jesus Christ and in the salvation I have in him. And I will not do that anymore. I am, that person died. That old simple self is dead. And I'm alive in Christ. I will not do that anymore. And you can just choose to stop it. I had so many people tell me, well, I just can't help myself. Yes, you can. One of the fruit of the spirit in our lives is self-control. And you do have control over that. You cannot live there. And you can have blessed assurance of your salvation and know that you're no longer a slave to sin. You're not perfect and without sin, but sin is no longer your master. So don't obey it. Don't obey it. We also see a description of the state that we're in. And we're given some direct commands to do uh, in verses 11 through 13. So up until this point, we've been given this description of this is, this is the status that you're in, the position that you're in, positionally in, in the eyes of God. Now we're going to see some things to do. Verse 11. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, which I was just talking about. When you feel like you're falling into that temptation or when you maybe even feel like, hey, man, I'm living in that old nasty house again. I can't stand it. You tell yourself, I'm dead to sin. Sin is not my master. I am a child of God. Tell yourself that over and over again and get out of that. Stop it. Stop whatever bad thing you were doing, whatever sin you were doing. You can do that. Consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You can tell yourself also, sin is not my king. Sin is not my master. And you do not obey it when you're tempted. You do not obey your flesh and follow it into sin. You say, no, 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 no. And you can know when it's coming, right? You can kind of feel when it's coming, when the temptation's there. In the past, the old dead self would have said, oh, I, I'm just, can't help myself. It's just, it's just how I am. And you fall right into it. You live there. The new self says, no, it's not my master. Jesus is my Lord and King. Jesus is my master. He loves me. He died for me. I will live in his righteousness and I will not follow that into sin. You have that power. Then verse 13, he says this, do not present your members to sin as instruments. Now in the Greek, that word could be translated weapons. It could be translated instruments or weapons. It's like a battle analogy. You don't present your members like your body, basically, as weapons for unrighteousness, 
but you present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death into life and your members to God as weapons for righteousness. So now you're on God's side. It's like, okay, no longer am I going to use my, this body and mind and heart and soul that he's given me as a weapon for evil and sin in the world. I'm in the Lord's army now. And I'm going to use this created body that he gave me to the best I can as weapons for his kingdom. I'm going to love. I'm going to serve. I'm going to, through humility, share the gospel and love and serve others and not myself. I'm going to use this body, mind, heart, and soul that he's given me as weapons for his kingdom, for his glory. Use your hands to serve and not do harm. Use your feet to go and give love and not go and serve yourself. So these commands show us that, you know, even though we've died to sin, we still do sin. And we must lay claim to the victory we have over sin through the work of Christ daily in our lives. Let's daily present ourselves to God for his service. And use our bodies as weapons for righteousness, for his glory. And then he finishes up here in verse 14 for today. Sin will have no dominion over you. You're not under law, but under grace. Peter writes about this in 1 Peter 2. He says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. So you get it there again. We've died to sins. We live for righteousness. By whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so church, brothers and sisters, Christ is our master. He's our new master. He's the overseer of our souls. We're no longer slaves to sin. Christ won the victory over sin through his death on the cross. And I just ask, what about you? Do you have victory in Jesus? Do you live victorious over sin, or are you still serving sin as your slave master? If you've never trusted Christ for salvation, then you are a slave to sin today, and you feel it. The weight and burden of the wrath of God bears down on your soul. You feel it if you've never trusted in him. You can end that right now by placing your faith and your trust in him. Some of you are believers, but you sometimes still feel defeated by sin. So when tempted, remember, you're dead to sin, alive to Christ. You just say that, dead to sin, alive to Christ. Living in that. And you don't serve sin anymore. And you can rejoice in that freedom and follow hard after the righteous works God has created for us. All for the glory of his name. Your chains are gone. You've been set free. Thank you, Jesus, for that truth.